Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. The old saying goes, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. History, of course, is generally written by historians who weren't there. The people who made the history might write their own versions, but their independence will always be questioned. However, combine that first-hand experience and historical rigour and you get a better chance of learning the real lessons. That's why leading military historian Andrew Roberts teamed up with arguably the most significant military commander of the 21st century so far, General David Petraeus. They've been telling me about their book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, how it applies to the wars of today and how they hope to help the generals of the future avoid the mistakes of the past. Uh, gentlemen, great to speak to you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on SITREP. Um, Andrew Roberts, if I could just ask you the first question, um, how did the book come about? It was an idea that I had soon after the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I got on to David and uh, suggested we write a book that put the Ukraine invasion in its military historical context. I thought there were going to be lots of books that would be coming out about its geopolitical and political contexts. But actually, this really concentrates on, on the military history side of things. And the publishers really liked that idea. And we had a um, a meeting and I was asked how we were going to split up the chapters. And I said, well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded. And uh, I would well, fit Vietnam. in. <laughs> and also Vietnam as well. Yeah, he wrote that chapter too. I'd sort of fill in some of the rest. So all in all, it was a fantastic intellectual exercise, sending chapters backwards and forwards and uh, and coming up with a sort of final synthesis. We've talked together before, Kate. Um, we've done a number of events over the years. I'd actually done the Cliveden Literary Festival twice with Andrew without having ever written a book. So it was a delight to be back there having written one this time. But uh, we did a number of events at the New York Historical Society around Andrew's fantastic book on Churchill. Uh, others at, at the Army Museum, for example, on the George III book since he was the last king of America. Uh, and, and have had a lot of fun over the years. And General Petraeus, the stories of these wars have been recorded before. What are you trying to achieve with the book? Well, we wanted to provide real focus on those since World War II uh, and to identify themes that might emerge. And in fact, a huge one uh, emerged. It literally caused us to go back and rewrite the the uh, introduction and so forth in the early chapters because we realized that we needed to give much greater prominence to the importance of strategic leadership, uh, that many of these conflicts, as we examined them, were won or lost by the quality of that strategic leadership. And that is defined as performing four tasks. And this can be the civil leader at the very top of a, a country, a coalition, what have you, and then certainly the military leader who is in command of the specific war, the campaign. And they have to get four tasks right. They have to get the big ideas right, understand the context in all aspects, craft the right strategy. They have to explain the big ideas, communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization and to all, everyone else who has a stake in the outcome of the conflict. They have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, what we normally think of as leadership, the example, the energy, the inspiration, how you spend your time, the metrics, um, 
attracting great people, retaining them, allowing others to move on. And then a fourth task that has to be formally part of your battle rhythm that you establish as part of overseeing the implementation, how you spend your time to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. And a lot of the listeners, I think, will recall this model being used, for example, explicitly during the surge in Iraq, where the big Mm -hmm. ideas were literally 180 degrees different uh, from what it was prior to that. Um, beyond that, of course, I had, you know, very considerable involvement in the Iraq war. I was a two-star commander of the 101st when we invaded it. I came back fairly quickly after that as a three-star to build the train and equip mission. That was a 15 and a half months tour and then came back for 19 and a half months to command the surge, having spent the intervening time uh, back in the U.S. preparing the counterinsurgency field manual, overhauling all of our pre- preparation of forces and leaders for deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, of course, I was later the commander in Afghanistan with Central Command in between where I oversaw the entire region. And interestingly, the editor, when he got the normal third person uh, writing on those two chapters, said, no, no, you know, you have to do that in the first person. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I did. And again, I think that that can add some considerable personal insights on this, noting that, again, it wasn't just when I was the commander in Iraq or in Afghanistan. I also did an assessment there as a three-star, then was the overall commander, uh, again, of the region as the four-star before going to Afghanistan. And of course, after that, I went to the CIA. So during these periods, again, quite significant individual involvement in it. And then with respect to Vietnam, it was fascinating to go back and relook the subject of my PhD dissertation at Princeton which was written 10 years after the fall of the South Vietnamese mm-hmm. government, uh, and now with 25 more years of, of scholarship, to reassess that very considerably and to realize, for example, that the U.S. leadership did not get the big ideas right on Vietnam, certainly not on the battlefield, certainly not at the level of ultimately, say, General Westmoreland. And it was for over a decade before we really did begin to get them right, at which point in time, domestic support in the U.S. had eroded so substantially that it was really not possible to to implement them fully. So again, this element of strategic leadership is one that we just keep coming back to again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And one where we look at in Ukraine, you can contrast Zelensky and Putin, you know, a great strategic leader, Churchillian, in fact, in various performance of these different tasks, uh, you know, I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. My family and I are going to stay in Kiev. We're going to fight it out here. All men are going to stay in the country, uh, et cetera, compared with Putin, who makes colossal misjudgments, underestimating the Ukrainian and U.S., U.K. and Western response, overestimating his forces capabilities, setting out to make Russia great again. And what he really does is make NATO great again. So all of this was really great fun. And to do it, together with one of the world's great historians and biographers, was really a privilege uh, and and actually very enjoyable. And Andrew, the book, um, it says that warfare has evolved at a dizzying pace. What has driven that, do you think? Is it technology? Is it people or something else? Uh, Well, it's certainly both of those. Um, I think it's necessity, really. The necessity of victory is such an imperative that, of course, everything that can be uh, harnessed to try to win victory will be, uh, be that uh, technology or or um, or people or systems. Uh, we're seeing it when um, the uh, the Hamas terrorists in their monstrous, totally sinister and evil attack on uh, Israel used 
things like hang gliders and uh, motorized gliders and uh, surfboards and various things that one didn't uh, before really uh, think of as as a new weapon, but which clearly in certain circumstances, including this one, can be used as a new weapon. So there's virtually uh, nothing that uh, human imagination can't be put to uh, when it comes to warfare. And when you look at the, the war in Ukraine, Russia has chosen to revert however, to a brutal Second World War style of fighting. Why is that? Well, First World War, you could argue, couldn't you, in the Donbass, you know, where you have um, barbed wire and no man's land and trenches and so on. And uh, and again, that is because it is the most um, efficacious way of war at in that particular place. Uh, now, mm. that's not necessarily going to be true should the Ukrainians be able to get through the minefields in southern Ukraine and actually fan out, and, th- and then you'd see a much more open, manoeuvrable kind of uh, warfare. But uh, I'd be interested to hear David's view on that. Well, uh, Max Boot, the great Washington Post uh, writer, has characterized Ukraine as all quiet on the Western Front meets Blade Runner. And it is all of that. Again, as Andrew noted, many elements familiar to students of the First World War. Uh, You see Cold War armored systems, tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. These are exactly what we had uh, when we were in the NATO Warsaw Pact face off in the up to the late 1980s when I served as a major on the inter-German border brigade operations officer. But you also see much more cutting edge uh, technology and rapid advances with this, frankly. Um, you see certainly increasing numbers of sophisticated drones that are not just remotely piloted, but increasingly algorithmically piloted, where the human in the loop is not the person flying it or pulling the trigger. It's the person who designed the software program that is guiding it. And you see all of this as well in an unprecedentedly transparent environment, because everyone in this battlefield has a smartphone, access to the Internet, and social media websites and platforms up to which they can upload uh, videos, photographs, statements, and all the rest of that. So this is very much an all of the above war. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what militaries of the world have to be prepared for, even as we do absolutely have to transform substantial quantities of our forces from a small number of very large platforms to a massive number of very small unmanned systems that will, again, not just be remotely piloted, but increasingly algorithmically piloted. And by the way, not just in the air um, and on ground, but on the surface of the sea, subsurface, so under the sea, uh, in outer space, and the equivalent in cyberspace as well. And, And Andrew, do you think that the war in Ukraine is already showing us something new then about the future of war? Um, Oh, I I certainly do think that, yes. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that we made sure that the last chapter of this book, chapter 10, is uh, entitled The Future of War. And we go into the way in which robotics and AI, sensors, space, cyber, drones, and so on, all the things actually that uh, David was mentioning just then, and other things like disinformation and uh, so on, can give us signs and hints about the future of war. But we don't argue that it's a template for the future of war, because were Russia to uh, fight um, NATO, NATO would have a series of um, of weapon systems that it hasn't yet given to uh, Ukraine, and which would be devastating. 
Uh, General Petraeus, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has an interesting parallel with the Yom Kippur War when Israel was attacked by an Arab coalition led by Egypt and Syria in 1973. Egypt successfully maintained surprise by convincing everyone its military build-up was just routine training. Even its own soldiers didn't even know they were going to war until it happened. Russia seemingly tried to do the same kind of thing, and yet everyone knew the invasion of Ukraine was coming. Did Moscow play the stunt badly? Well, they certainly gave it away. Um, obviously, you can look at what forces are doing. Um, they can be exercising in theory, which is what they repeatedly said, the forces on the Ukrainian and uh, borders with Belarus and Russia were doing. Um, but at the end of the day, as you'll recall, something else unprecedented happened in this war, and that is that U.S. and U.K. intelligence shared assessments of what was going on and what was going to happen real time uh, without exposing sources and methods. So you essentially have to launder highly classified assessments so that they can be released publicly. Uh, and that was quite unique. I can't recall that being done, certainly not uh, in that quantity, that volume, and all public. These weren't authorized leaks, if you will. Uh, this wasn't somebody speaking anonymously. Uh, because he supposedly wasn't allowed to talk to the press. This, these were open press uh, accounts. And again, that is quite unique uh, as well. Now, to be sure, not everyone believed that it was going to happen despite this amount of intelligence being released. In, in fact, even the Ukrainians didn't truly mobilize uh, their forces until about 24 hours prior to the actual invasion, perhaps for some understandable reasons that you don't want to panic the population prematurely. Uh, but they had to really react very quickly uh, as they didn't have the kinds of days or weeks that one might want to have to prepare defensive positions and obstacles and so forth. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, General Petraeus, um, you personal to you, uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan both started with rapid success for the US and yes. its allies, but it became long drawn out failures. What personal lessons do you take from those wars? Well, there's a number about the initial period, particularly uh, in, in Iraq, if I could, that, I mean, one is that you should understand a country really well if you're going to invade it. And the truth is we didn't have the kind of really granular, deep, nuanced understanding of the situation on the ground. And perhaps that wasn't to be expected because we hadn't had even diplomats, but much less intelligence officers serving in Iraq proper for a number of years. Um, the second is don't then administer the subsequent occupation with a pickup team. We should have established an embassy right away uh, and, if, and also a four-star headquarters. Now, ultimately, we did do that about a year and a half into our time there, uh, but the Coalition Provisional Authority was a rotating door of individuals, many of whom only stayed three months and then rotated back to the States or, or wherever else. Uh, and that just didn't provide the kind of continuity, the kind of relationship building and so forth that was necessary. Uh, and then Finally, beyond that, don't conduct operations and certainly don't approve policies that will create vastly more enemies uh, than you take off the street by the conduct of that policy. So here I'm getting at the uh, firing of the Iraqi military without telling them how they were going to be able to provide for their families. That created hundreds of thousands of enemies of the new Iraq. Their incentive was to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it. And then we compounded that with a decision to fire the Ba'ath Party, Saddam's party, to be sure, 
Uh, and certainly the top level, the second level, perhaps even many in the third level should go. But the fourth level contained the bureaucrats that we needed actually to administer Iraq. Keep in mind, the big idea was we're going to lop off the Saddam regime and all the loyalists, and then everyone else is going to stay in place. Even the police will stay there, and then we'll just put some new people on top whom everyone will will support, uh, and then we'll go home to a victory parade. Obviously, that did not transpire. And again, the firing of these individuals without an agreed reconciliation policy uh, and process uh, created tens of thousands of additional uh, individuals whose incentive was to oppose the new Iraq instead of to help us administer it. Now, I was very fortunate. I was a two-star then commander of the 101st Airborne Division to be able to get an exception to that policy uh, from Ambassador Bremer, the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, the CPA. Uh, but I was rare in that. No one else was able to get that. We, therefore, did far better for far longer uh, in the Mosul, Nainua area where we were uh, responsible. Um, but ultimately, even there, uh, that fell apart because the, we couldn't get support for that in Baghdad from the Iraqis because you didn't have an agreement beforehand. So again, those are very early ones uh, about the actual initial period. And needless to say, you got to have a heck of a lot better policy uh, for the uh, the post-conflict phase, if you will, uh, however short that may have been, than we had. I did actually ask a question in Kuwait, the final gathering of all the division and three-star commanders with the Organization for Reconstruction Humanitarian Assistance, the forerunner of the CPA, which got fired after a couple of weeks by Secretary Rumsfeld. But I asked these two retired three-stars who are running that, you know, could you give us a little bit more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the regime? And their response was, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave, we'll take it from there. And obviously that did not work out uh, particularly well. I mean, it's, it's incredible when you describe it like that, um, the benefit of hindsight. I'm just wondering, can I ask both of you, you, you General Petraeus, for being involved and also Andrew from watching it from the outside. W were these kind of mistakes apparent at the time or is it with hindsight that you see them? I think it's a mix. Um, there were some other mistakes as well. We really probably should have had a larger force. We did originally have a year prior to that when I was the chief of staff of the 18th Airborne Corps in the United States, we owned that particular plan. And we had over 100,000 forces more than what we actually invaded uh, Iraq with as well. It, it was slimmed down during the year that I was in uh, Bosnia uh, chasing war criminals with your special forces and some other things. But again, some obviously becomes much clearer uh, with hindsight. But that's part of what we try to do here is to try to point these out so that those in the future uh, might have the benefit of this kind of historical reflection. Yes, I think that, um, I mean, having 2020 hindsight is the privilege of an historian, of course, you know, that, that that's your job, really, in a sense. But the most difficult thing about being a historian is to get the reader to place themselves in the shoes of the decision makers at the time, who don't know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And First of all, that's a very difficult thing to do as a writer, just in general, because you've got to sort of suspend disbelief, as it were. And secondly, you have to do it um, on a on a sort of moral level, because otherwise you can't blame people for getting things wrong if you know they were given two alternatives and both were bad, essentially. And that is something that does happen a, a lot in the past. And it's important for us to uh, to recognise that and not blame people, essentially, for doing things that were the least bad option, as it were. 
And what was it like for you, Andrew, though, actually writing the history of these conflicts for someone who, and analysing them with someone who was actually involved? Um, well, of course, working with uh, with David was fascinating because I was able to email him and ask him how he felt at particular times or or what certain people, great historical figures, essentially, uh, were like because he, he served with them and, and, and met them and knew them. So and I never have. So that was a, a tremendous insight for me. Up until then, I'd only ever written about people like Churchill and Napoleon, who were safely dead and who I knew would not contradict the um, decisions and the <laughs> statements that uh, I made. It uh, was it was really intellectually stimulating. Yeah, and General Petraeus is very, very much alive. I can't say safely dead at all. Um, General Petraeus, um, you say a recurring theme in the book is that money spent on deterrence is seldom wasted. Uh, given how much conflict there has been since World War II, is that a lesson we failed to learn or is it just that deterrence does have its limits? Uh, again, it's a bit of both, certainly. Um, you have to make sure that deterrence is very, very solid um, by ensuring that the potential adversary sees very formidable capabilities on the one hand and a willingness to employ them on the other. And we have to remember that what happens in one part of the world can reverberate in another. The Syrian red line that was a red line uh, did reverberate out into the Asia Pacific. The decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and the way it was conducted were seized on by President Xi, uh, who said publicly, see, you can't count on the Americans. They're an unreliable partner, and look how it went. They're a great power in decline. I would, I would submit, in fact, that the decision to withdraw and the way it was conducted contributed at least to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, thinking based on that, based on the relatively tepid response to Crimea and the Donbass in 2014, that he could get away with this without the US, UK, and NATO and Western world responding as we actually have. So we have to be very conscious of all of the elements of deterrence, but at the end of the day, you have to have the capabilities, that is the foundation, and there should be no question about your willingness to use them. Ironically, that's how you actually avoid having to use them as we did successfully uh, during the Cold War. And when deterrence fails, of course, it always winds up as far more expensive than if you just spent the money in the first place uh, on the deterrence. That is uh, that is something that happens again and again in history, which is why this is such an extraordinary time when we've got a war going on in Europe uh, and other things going on in the Middle East for the British army to be cut from 82,000 to 73,000. You know, it seems an insane decision and a scandal, frankly, that we should be choosing this time of all times to cut back on the British Army. General Petraeus, um, today at the end of 2023, we have a new war between Israel and Hamas. Given the unique history of the region, do the lessons of other wars apply here? Well, certainly they do. Um, but I would submit that this is a, a fiendishly horribly difficult situation uh, for Israel. Uh, the big idea here, stated by Prime Minister Netanyahu when he declared war, is that they must achieve more than just the return to the status quo ante, in other words, either the defeat or destruction of Hamas. But think about the challenges in doing that. There are over 100 hostages uh, that Hamas has seized. Uh, you're talking about a population of 2.3 million, very densely populated, especially in Gaza City itself, high rises. When you go into this, 
the casualties are going to be tough. The enemy doesn't wear a uniform. How do you identify the Hamas uh, terrorists and, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorists? Um, how, you have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every basement, uh, every tunnel, and you have to leave substantial forces behind to prevent those from being reinfiltrated by the enemy through various means. Uh, and those have to be sufficiently substantial that they can't be swarmed uh, by individuals you thought were civilians um, and taken hostage, adding to the problems. And then there are the challenges potentially of a wider war if Hezbollah chooses to come into this, although I hope that they will remember what happened to them in 2006 and the enormous destruction wrought in the wake of that particular incursion by Hezbollah. Could Syria do something? Could there be challenges in the West Bank uh, from the Palestinians there? Could Iran get involved in some way here? We still don't know the real nature uh, of their involvement here, though we know obviously that they fund uh, Hamas, Pidge, Hezbollah, and other militias throughout the region. But the difficulty of the task that lies ahead uh, for the Israeli soldiers is very, very considerable. I, as, as a commander who oversaw operations on multiple occasions uh, that involved large urban areas, hundreds of thousands of people, I have some idea of the challenge, but those weren't cases where everybody was against us by any means, especially during the mm -hmm. fight to Baghdad. They wanted to get rid of Saddam and they didn't have the kinds of high rises that you have here. Or I think what I fear will be buildings that will blow up or rooms that will blow up. Suicide bombers, uh, again, that kind of situation makes it, again, just incredibly difficult for individual soldiers. The result will be very considerable collateral damage, both in terms of infrastructure and civilian loss of life, uh, the food, fuel, uh, water, electricity have been shut off to Gaza. So it's going to become uh, a humanitarian catastrophe very quickly as well. Uh, so the challenges that lie ahead, again, are very, very considerable. And, and, and it's one of those cases where you're, you know, your, your thoughts and, and prayers are very much with these soldiers who are about to go into very significant battle. And Andrew, if we could just um, finish uh, on the way your book finishes, The Future of Warfare, what do you think it holds? Well, like uh, as we say in the chapter, it's going to be technologically um, very different in the future. We are going to see AI and robotics, for example, being uh, applied to uh, to fighter jets and uh, and other weapons. We're going to see underwater drones. We're going to see satellites fighting each other, perhaps in in space. It's going to be a very different uh, kind of war. And it uh, requires huge amounts of money to be spent and um, lots of soldiers to fight it. Andrew Roberts, General David Petraeus, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kate. Good to be you very much. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. <laughs>